0: So, what better time to publish a book about the links between flexible working and well-being than April 2020? A month into lockdown and many people were working out the pros and cons of remote work for the first time. That was the position that two of Europe's most eminent experts on workplace issues found themselves in as they published their new book, Flexible Work, Designing Our Healthier Future Lives. Today on the Wellbeing Matters podcast, we speak to the authors, Dr. Sarah Norgate and Sir Carey Cooper. Sarah is a former Reader in Applied Developmental Psychology at the University of Salford, that's quite a mouthful, and has since completed a PhD at the University of Warwick. Sir Kerry Cooper is the 50th Anniversary Professor of Organisational Psychology and Health at the Alliance Manchester Business School at the University of Manchester. He's also the President of the CIPD and Co-Chair of the National Forum for Health and Wellbeing at Work. We discuss the timeliness of the book, how our knowledge of the issues involved is already very highly developed, and what has been holding back more organisations from adopting flexible and remote work until now. So, let's dive in. My name is Mark Eltringham, and this is the Workplace Insight Podcast. Hi, thanks for joining us today. Um, Your book was published in um, April just as the lockdown kind of began in earnest, and given its themes, do you think it's particularly timely?
1: Well, we didn't anticipate this going on. I mean, you know, we didn't know COVID was going to happen. But certainly, we were very interested, both Sarah and I, in flexible working generally. And it had become much more popular among people. But there had been inhibitions about taking it in the past. And did we know the book was going to be published right in the middle of all
2: this? No, we didn't. But it is absolutely timely. It is. It really is caring. I mean, I think what's interesting as well is that even before COVID-19 struck, um, there was a demand for flexible working and, um, you know, big awareness of the barriers. I mean, just to throw out some stats, we've had about 55% of workers were doing flexible work and... Um, those who didn't do flexible work, about I think uh, 75% wanted to. And remote working's always been the underdog. And of course, that's coming to the fore now. And the book really shows up some research gems in the areas of psychology and social science. And so, what we're trying to do is to make flexible working work. And of course, now we're knee deep in this situation. Um, and many organisations around the country are grappling with what to do next. We hope that our book will offer some, you know, research and, and recommendation gems to give people the confidence and their workforces the confidence to take it forward for the future.
0: Excellent. And one of the things I found interesting when reading the book was about how. You, you talk about working lives rather than just about the office because often people see this as an office thing and actually it's about something a bit broader than that. It's about technology and culture as well. Is is, is that something that people are picking up on more, do you think? Well, I think they're gonna be picking up now primarily
1: because first of all, the inhibitions I think in the past, I mean, lots of people wanted to take flexible working. I did a big, huge study. Uh, looking at with working families and we were looking at why don't men apply for flexible working but women do and if they do what happens what are, the, what are the results of them doing it and the results were that if men wanted to and they could get it and they applied for it in their organization they showed that they were more job satisfied had less sickness absentees were more productive but the bulk of men didn't take it because they thought it would adversely affect their career now that we've gone through this natural experiment, mm-hmm. and that experiment has said we can work flexibly, we can actually get not work-life balance, but work-life integration is what you're talking about. Yeah. And the future as a result of all this will be that massively people will now be working more flexibly, not remotely fully, and they won't work working 100% remote. Because the majority of people do want social contact, which the office gives you. And so I think what we're going to get is a tsunami of people applying to work flexibly. Employers are going to want to do it because it means that they have less office space costs, for one thing. And that's going to be, that'll save them a packet at a time when we're going into a recession.
2: I agree with that prediction, Carrie. I think that's definitely what we're going to see a trend towards over the coming months. And I think, you know, to answer Mark's question, thinking, looking back, Uh, the traditional nine-to-five office cultures. I mean, I I agree. I don't think there wasn't enough recognition of the psychological demands that were ongoing in in that era, because I do think it's a bygone era. And, you know, particularly thinking of the mental health impact of the commute for... And workforce, particularly those workers who are maybe, you know, doing up to notching up four hours of commute a day and also navigating the spillover into their work to home boundaries. Again, which brings us back to the point Carrie was making about the um, gender equalization. So, yeah, I think uh, that it's been an experience which is going to be mm, built upon and open eyes to new ways of working.
0: Okay. So, I know it's always been one of the things that's affected women's careers in particular hasn't it is because I think when you look at ONS stats on things like pay the real problems are evident at the age of 30 to 35 that's when women's um, careers you know diverge significantly from men's so their experience of work changes significantly at that age do you think that is something in particular that might be um, be evident you know that women actually have more choices about how to work so will learn more and have more options with their careers as they go forward?
1: I think I think it's about more about men than women in a way okay. women have always worked flexibly right they've had to they felt they had to because they had to juggle the home and the work environment and not many of them had new men who were prepared to dance you know to try to integrate more and work more flexibly because as my study found men felt it it, it damaged their career if they applied for flexible working but no longer will damage their career uh, women have always done it, although they did say in the study we did that they felt that working flexibly did affect their career because they were less involved in the political machinations that went on in the workplace. They were perceived as less committed and so on. And, uh, but that's all changing now. That is dramatically changing. But I think what will change fundamentally, and this is more of a societal thing than a workplace thing, is the role that men play in the family now. I think will be changed quite dramatically. And that men, if they've learned nothing about these last few months, they should have learned that maybe what's really important in their lives, a facet that they
0: haven't invested in much in, which is actually the family. Excellent. I actually have to say, I did this myself 20 odd years ago. I I gave up a life in in office, you know, because my wife earned more than me and was better at it than I was. So that's when I went freelance. So that was the last job I had, 1996. The book discusses the barriers to the uptake of flexible working. What would you say are the main ones, and how do you think those barriers may have changed as a result of lockdown?
2: I think one of the barriers um, is the flexibility stigma. Um, And what researchers have found is that, you know, although an organisation may have, you know, the formal policies, of course, this on the grounds, culture will override it. And what we see is that co-workers and supervisors will interpret the workers' need to request flexible working as actually a need um, for flexibility as a sign of some kind of decreased commitment to the organisation. Um, I think particularly in those organisations and cultures, work cultures, where there's an emphasis on long hours, it's like a badge of honour, isn't it, working hours. And so commitment and ambition in these situations is taken as you know, something that is the key to that organisational culture. So in that situation, there'll be biased interpretations of the workers' performance and their perceived input instead of understanding their outputs and outcomes. Um, So I suppose that for me, that's one of the main barriers.
1: I think think Sarah's right. I mean, I I think I have a kind of another barrier that I worry about in, in flexible working in the new world of work. And that is that we really haven't learned how to work from home properly, except the small number of people who've been doing it for years, in the sense that how do we routine our day? And given the fact, by the way, we're going to have a lot more disposable hours, if people work substantially from home, because that's the way I predict they will, it won't be substantially in the office and on a Friday from home. It's going to be substantially from home and occasionally going into the office to meet our social needs, to have meetings, for all that kind of stuff. But the worry I have will be that they have a lot they'll have more disposable hours because they won't have the two to three hour commute into a central office environment. So that will be great and it gives them their productivity should increase as a result. But will they know how to clock off? Will they manage their day in such a way that they don't overwork. And that's the kind of concern I have. Been, it's a learning thing. I think we will just learn, all
0: of us, how to manage the day.
1: I mean, the good news in the future will be that given two out of three families are working families, both member working, and doing the homeschooling was a nightmare during these three months for quite a lot of families. They won't have that problem in the future. So that's not going to be an inhibitor but the worry I have is, will they know how to clock off, or will they? Will working from home, uh, they won't have a kind of routine that will enable them to actually stop. But I think they will learn how to do that. I, I you know, because we we will all learn in this new world how to work from home substantially, and ensuring that our colleagues, our customers, our clients, everybody that we, we interface with understands when our off time is you know i'm not available tonight
2: yeah i think at the moment particularly because uh you know we're working under the conditions the crisis conditions or less so now but certainly back in march and april in the uk working under those conditions you know normally it takes about 66 days to establish a habit so you know and that's within one task domain specific from a psychological perspective people you know were juggling care independence or learning to live alone and do their work from home alone without any socialization. And as Kerry said, you know, hopping on on and off the tech, it takes a while to, you know, what habits work for you personally under those conditions. So we've got to remember we've under, we're living under extreme remote working at the moment and there's hope once we understand more about how we best function, um, at home and in co-working spaces, how we can do this much better and, and mesh it with the rest of our lives. Okay.
1: Yeah. You know what I think another problem, Sarah, is, and, and this is a problem we've had for a long time, but now I think companies are, are going to, and organizations are going to have to confront it, which is we need a different kind of line manager from shop floor to top floor. This is going to be the big, big issue because we've been talking a long time in the health and well-being arena about line managers have to have high levels of eq emotional intelligence they have to have good social interpersonal skills and the problem in the uk is we have very very good technical managers from shop floor to top floor but their people skills are are wanting now given that people work are going to be working substantially more flexibly given that people are going into recession which means they're going to feel job insecure we need line managers who have
0: parity between their technical and people skills we don't have
1: that in the uk at the moment that is a major major deficit and lots of reports have come out and shown that so the other thing organizations are going to have to do is train up their existing cadre of managers develop their eq their emotional intelligence to be sensitive to their subordinates to manage people much more remotely and teams much more remotely than they have in the past and then recruit people who've got parity between those technical skills and people skills. And we haven't been doing that. You're usually promoted based on your technical skills, not your people skills. So that's going to be a really interesting issue that I think is going to hit HR big time in the coming year.
2: Absolutely. I mean, in terms of the, the training, what's really encouraging is that there's new research. You've, you've heard of it, Kerry. In relation to um, teleworkers who are actually um, feeling much better psychologically at home a better job satisfaction because you know they're showing self leadership at home as opposed to the work when they're you know being much more perhaps in, if you call it instructional mode and so they're doing much better they're feeling much better and they did this research comparing the same workers at the home compared with the office so I think that's really encouraging and those kind of findings can open the eyes of future managers.
0: Question I always place on, on this now is, how do you think people will feel about working from home at the end of the winter rather than in a sunny spring? Oh, I think they'll be okay with working from home. I really do. I think the, the downside
1: of what's just happened to us during this health crisis is the homeschooling bit has made it more difficult for, for families. You know because they're trying to juggle working from home and figuring out who's going to play what role and who's going to do the homeschooling and who's going to do this i think it's made it more complicated that will disappear as kids go back to school so i don't think not only that i think people will love it even even in the winter they'll love it okay. think about the, in the commute in the winter going into a central office environment going into manchester to london to glasgow to paris to madrid Are you joking? I mean, you know, the downtime on that, number one, and the stress of commuting. aside from anything else, I think as long as, by the way, organizations don't eliminate entirely the central office because people will need social contact and social connectedness. They will need a place where they can go and have meetings and share and talk about their boss and about Manchester City Football Club, and about Boris Johnson, and about Trump, and all the things that human beings do to meet their social needs are still going to need a place, a place for them. But that place will be massively downsized.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because in any experimental situation to compare remote work in lockdown versus not lockdown across the different seasons, but yeah, in January, it's as a month renowned for mental health issues and suicides. And, you know, for people with mental health issues to actually be able to stay at home and still maybe take some exercise, bit in the rain. Surely they'll feel positive about those kind of opportunities. I mean, we do know there's mixed attitudes, there's no point hiding away from some data at the moment that does show that um, I think there's a high proportion of HR managers um, who are concerned about e-presenteeism and stress, burnout, isolation. But that's not surprising at the moment, given the current conditions we're working in, where people's self-efficacy and general sense of feeling about themselves and the multiple identities they're juggling under one roof or under one room, in the case of some people who are living. Been in one room. Um, that's with that going on is actually very difficult. So I think we should be more optimistic. We are doing extreme remote working at the moment. And also, more positively, there are, I think, in the Flexible Future of Work report, th- about a third of workers from that particular survey who actually want to increase their remote work by up to about three days a week. So that's their attitude now. So that shows a positive attitude. And once I think we've established more research data on, on the benefits then um, people be compelled when they see the positive outcomes from that and also how we can learn to coach ourselves to work differently and to live our lives differently as well. It's not just about the work in our home, it's how we maybe enmesh our new social circles from maybe working more at home. We've got new decisions to make and also where we relocate potentially as well, because there are reports at the moment that many people considering moving to the coast you know and actually completely reinventing their lives so we've got a, not a blank piece of paper because of course there's inequalities but certainly some degree of opportunity to change our future lives for healthier
0: i, I, you, I remember one of the early stories was about an, an architecture practice in central london that decided to close its office they had about 50 staff and they said we're just going to work remotely from now on so close our central london office and my immediate response to that was to think well Maybe the problem isn't the office it's the central London bit you know it's because whenever you see surveys you know of 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 people's attitudes towards work the number one thing they have a problem with is is commuting it's Mm -hmm. that it's and we've always known haven't we it's a sort of mad thing to do is everybody get on a train at the same time every day and travel into Waterloo just strikes me as being barking mad you know and always has been and we have a chance now I guess to to address those issues
2: Completely agree that I mean, Mark. There's you know data that shows uh, there's some wonderful data that shows that over ten year period, um, there's impact mentally and on our you know guts, uh, you know at all levels of health. So, the longer we do it, the worse it gets. So, we need to be protecting health, and especially with inequalities, and particularly so for those communities who've got more than one stop. So, there's research out there that supports that argument as well. People may not be aware of it, but it drops it, it out in January, of course, when the um, rail fares increase.
0: But you see, I think the, 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 the
1: big motivator for employers will be several motivators now on flexible working. I think one will be obviously that it can be done that they're not downtime for their employees, that they can have They have another two or three hours, disposable hours in the day with a lack of commute. And I think the really motivator will be, hey, listen, we got to keep our, our, our costs down dramatically. Now we're going into a recession. If we were going right back to work again at the same level, that wouldn't have
0: necessarily been a big motivator. But now, can you imagine how much money they're going to be able to save
1: on reducing office space by 70%? which is probably what most organizations are going to do. I know tons of organizations that are going to say to their employees, listen, we'll have an office space. We'll have one floor instead of four. It's for you to come in. It's kind of a hot desking operation. That's what we're going to do from now on. You can have meetings here and everything else, but you're working primarily from home. So uh, their motivator will be financial as well as they get more disposable working time for their from their employees with less stress. So, We'll just see how it goes. There will be people, incidentally, though, who want to go from, you know, they they get up in the morning in a box, they go to work in a box called a bus tube train, they go to another box called the workplace, and then they want to do, and they want to come back to the box, and they don't want those intermingled. But I think that proportion now is very
0: small, and particularly among the millennials, minute. Uh, I'm hearing anecdotal evidence, though, about how we have to make distinctions between people's experiences of um, of working from home. Because a 25 year old who works in, say, uh, central London, lives in Shoreditch or something, um, has a very different experience of what's going on than sort of a senior manager who's got a nice house in in Guildford. So I've seen it described as not working from home, but actually sleeping in the office for some people. And they're also the ones that we need to have the comments. Cause I think the most of the conversations seem to be about the guy with the, um, with the big house and the garden and everything like that, rather than, you know, somebody who's uh, uses work for socializing, but also needs uh, a different sort of way of working to, to suit to themselves personally.
2: We need to think of that. And also the diversity of families out there as well. Um, not just a two-parent family. It gets lost in the debate sometimes.
1: But I do think you're right. I think it, there'll be generational differences. There'll be the singletons, the single people who have a flat in a lo- in London who won't want to do that, Will want to come into a central office environment more often. We just have to be pretty flexible as employers. What we don't want to do is impose flexible working on people or remote working and say that's what you have to do what we have to say is here are options open for you your career is no longer going to suffer if you want to work substantially from home that's fine if you want to come into a central office that's fine too but i suspect what you're going to get is probably a 70 30 split in in the service-based industries obviously can't do this in a hospital for nurses or in a paced assembly line There's certain contexts where flexible working just won't work.
0: Uh, Flexible shifts might work, but not flexible working, like working from home. But I think you're right. For younger people
1: who are single and, you know, don't have the kind of living space, the appropriate living space, they'll want to come into a central office environment, probably. So that's why we have to have it for a whole variety of reasons like that.
0: Um, This might be my final question that one of the things I've noticed about the debate is there's a lot of talk about productivity. And I think, you know, people are discovering that, you know, people are at least as productive home as they are in the office and probably more so for most people. I have a bit of a problem with this because I'm always suspicious of conversations about productivity, and I think in recent years we've seen the debate in offices shift more onto things like well-being. And I worry that we're not talking about well-being enough for those working from home. Do you, do you share those worries, or is that something that I'm just sort of I've got I've got a bit wrong?
2: Yes, I, I actually agree, Mark, but I do think it's. Um... Potentially because it's easy to lift off negative metrics off the shelf. Of course, we can think about productivity not only at the level of the um, individual worker, but the level of the organisation and crucially nationally at the moment. Um, particularly when you're thinking at the moment at the latest figures on um, British product productivity, which is, you know, the lowest since the Industrial Revolution, And, you know, we're about 14% behind countries, benchmark countries like Germany. In terms of our productivity, we work the longest hours in Europe. So in that wider context, there's problems for us. So um, although there's little gems um, around which talk, I mean, I think that's why there's a, a mirrored debate around productivity at the level of the individual worker and somehow there's a neglect on the focus on wellbeing, but we know there's research gems out there that do report enhanced mental health and autonomy and you know, those research gems are out there. So I think it's really important to keep thinking of that. And also I suppose it's important to think of the type of work the workers are doing that, you know, it's easy to think about um, churning around loads of emails, but actually for the deeper creative work, when people are reflective and away from, you know, the desk and the open plan office space, they can produce innovative ideas. And we also need to, you know, jump up the league tables in terms of uh, British innovation. So I think there that yes, productivity has been in the headlines, but the more we can try and revamp the rhetoric to focus on wellbeing measures, the better and make them part of everyday conversations in organizations, that would be good.
1: One of the issues for me is, you know, it's very difficult to measure productivity. And we know that, particularly in a service-based economy like ours, you can measure it better in a manufacturing-orientated and engineering-orientated uh, culture, and we don't have that. We've, we lost quite a lot of it. By the way, that's part of the reason our productivity per capita doesn't look good. But it's also the way people are managed as well. I think our the way we manage people, because we have too many technocrats managing people rather than people managers, and that I think is a problem. Yes, we are tied seventh in the g 7 on productivity per capita, and we're 17th in the G20 on productivity per capita. So it's pretty poor, but but it's a funny measure because it's, it's difficult to measure quite a lot of what we do as a, a service-based economy. But there's tons of evidence where you can collect the data and it is fairly robust that where you create well-being cultures, and you're right about that, Mark, that's really critical. How do we create the culture where people feel valued, trusted, motivated, they're listened to, and they have autonomy, they can work flexibly if they want to, they have good line managers who manage it by recognition rather than fault-finding, all of those kind of characteristics, and a a flexible working arrangement culture which doesn't create a long hours culture, All of those kinds of things create the well being climate that ultimately I think will affect productivity. Productivity, by the way, is what I produce per hour. And part of that function, I mean, not me as an academic, but me as a worker, part of that is a function of how I manage. You know, do I have autonomy? Am I given control over my job? Am I forced or not to work long hours? Am I recognized? all of those kind of characteristics come a lot from whoever our line manager is from shop floor to top floor. If we get that right, therefore, well-being is important because it's all about that dynamic. It's about the line manager, it's about the culture of ours, etc.
0: Sorry, the question is, how prepared do you think businesses are to take that approach, though, about focusing on well-being and seeing that as the route to to productivity, rather than just to um, make work transactional again, so people get their to-do lists and you know, and they have their uh, set hours and stuff like that, you know, and the, everything is corporately managed. Do, do you think there's a risk that some firms will go down that route instead?
1: Well, they, they to be honest with you, a lot of the uh, the big corporates aren't going in that direction. Well-being is now a board issue. I have a university spin-off company, Robertson Cooper, University of Manchester spin-off company, and now. On a number
0: of our clients where we look, we help them create a well-being culture. And we have psychometric products that they use. And we, we look at their line manager, and the hours of work, all of that uh,
1: flexible working. We report to the board, goes to the board now. It's a board issue. But remember, two out of three employees work for an SME, a small and medium-sized enterprise. They don't have HR departments, many of them. They don't have occupational health, many of them, and that's where we need to invest time and effort to create those kind of cultures for those kind of companies
0: because two out of every three-person people working in the private sector work for an
1: SME. They don't work for the big boys. The big boys understand it. They really do. They understand this is a bottom-line issue. They understand the cost of sickness absence. They understand the cost of – uh, of not retaining people, of, of high labour turnover. They understand uh, the cost of being litigated against on, on the basis of stress at work, uh, of mental health. They understand all of that stuff and they understand how, how that's reflected in pounds and pence. But it's the SMEs I'm more concerned about and I think where all the work needs to be done.
2: In Finland, I think it's an interesting case where they've managed now to, since January, I'd like to see the research on how this is working out, but actually you know, spend 50% of their working hours working wherever they like, whenever they like, um, up to that. So I don't know how that interacts for SMEs, but I think that would be um, something that would be really helpful to support businesses. Having policy drivers and changes like that will give more freedom to workers on the ground potentially.
0: Yeah, because Finland always comes across as being one of the most happy countries in the world, doesn't it, whenever they do these reports. So they've probably already got a head start on us, would you say?
2: Absolutely, I I do agree with that. I don't know how it's working out on the ground, but certainly on paper, it looks incredible. Yeah, I wonder what the research shows.
1: Well, I think what we find in in Scandinavia generally, is not just Finland. I mean, you get it in Sweden and you get it in Norway and you get it in all these countries. Even the way they've managed COVID has been 10 times better than we've managed COVID. But certainly, I think they have been in the quality of working life arena for many, many years. They've been into how people should be managed, flexible working, all those kinds of issues for a heck of a long time. Uh, We've been slow to, in many other Western European countries, to to really uh, look at at well-being as a strategic issue that's the critical thing it's now a strategic issue and so uh, and seen to by boards and it's going down from the bigger companies to the bigger medium-sized companies we still have an issue of how do we support and help the small medium and the small and the micro businesses those are the businesses that need our support and help and they certainly need government support and help to get in this arena and uh the government's aware of it which i think is good news but you know i think we have one or two issues that we have to deal with in the medium ter- in the short term which is how do we deal with the covid issue and how do we deal with the recession about to come
0: okay but when we come out of this we're going to look forward to i, I don't like saying the new normal not going to do that but you know it's going to be a change perspective on work and flexible working and well-being and that's something we can take that's positive from all, from all of this i guess
1: we've learned a lot And Sarah and I both know that. I mean, we have learned a lot. If we haven't learned it, we deserve not to. We deserve to fail. We haven't learned about what we should be doing in the future and how we should be treating people and how we should manage human beings. After what we've gone through, uh, we don't deserve to be um, an economic powerhouse.
0: But we have the potential, and I think people have learned. That's excellent. Thank you so much. I think that's a perfect way to end. Thank you.